0: Good morning, Summit Church, and welcome back. Hope you had a great Christmas and New Year's. I uh, hope you survived the snowpocalypse of 2017. I know some of you started to think we had maybe disbanded as a church. It's been so long since we have seen each other. Um, it is true that a lot has happened since we last saw each other. So could we first just stop really quickly and say that Christmas at the DPAC was phenomenal. Um, our creative and worship team. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'll give you a chance to really, to really express yourself here in a minute. Under the leadership of Brandon Williams and Jonathan Welch and Gardner Pippen, our worship and creative team, many of whom are volunteers. They don't get paid anything to do it. They uh, really outdid themselves this year. Many would say it's our best year that we've ever done on that. Um, I tend to agree with that. So could we all put our hands together and say thank you to them for what they did. It was, it was, by God's grace, the largest service we've ever had here at the Summit Church. Over 14,000 came to one of the six services, many of whom are not a part of our church or really a part of any church. And so we had, um, I, I, we didn't get an exact number of this because we didn't take up a card, but um, it was scores of people that expressed, professed faith in Christ, uh, maybe even hundreds of people. So uh, we thank God for all of that. We also had an incredible December in regards to generosity. In that one month, December, you invested over $4 million here into the mission of God, uh, which is amazing. The people that invested the money are the ones that are excited about clapping for it, so we are thank God for all of you, Um, but uh, that allows us to get going on some of the outreach and expansion projects that we told you were in front of us, so I want to thank you very sincerely for that. Um, New year, of course, is a time of new beginnings. Uh, It's good to look around and see everybody has their new Fitbit on, and uh, you got your resolution to walk more, and uh, it's kind of fun and a little annoying to see everybody posting their whole 30 meals that they're now eating, you know, it's like, look what I made out of recycled wrapping paper and cardboard. I now eat this and, you know, whatever. The best one um, I've seen thus far, (laughs) my favorite post, um, dear God, my prayer for 2017 is a fat bank account and a thin body. Please don't mix it up again like you did last year. So... (laughs) Yeah, new beginnings can be good. And so, for these first two weeks of the year here at the Summit Church, I want to talk about an area that I believe we really need to grow in as a church, and that is our personal effectiveness in disciple making. Now, if you didn't grow up in church, the term disciple making probably sounds like a a strange term, but it just means teaching somebody else to follow Jesus like you were following Jesus. It's the heart of, of what Christians call the Great Commission, which is where Jesus, last thing he said before, he left, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to follow me the way that you follow me. Summit, you understand that God has blessed our church with tremendous growth. Um, On the weekend now, we average over 10,000 people here, but that does not necessarily mean that each of us as individuals is growing in our ability to make disciples. In fact, sometimes I fear that the growth of our church can obscure the fact that many of us are not making disciples because we look around and we see all the new people coming and we say, hey, I'm a part of a, a church that's growing and reaching people, so things must be great. And the amount of people here, can cover up a lack of personal fruitfulness. In fact, just ask yourself: you know, ten thousand people here this weekend. How many can you point to who are here because you reached out to them and brought them in? I, I would just say it very gently that some of you have been here for a decade, but you've never made a disciple of Jesus yourself personally. And here's the thing that I that I know: when we grow as a church primarily by what we do from up here on stage, then most of our growth ends up being the transfer in of bored Christians from other churches who come because we put on a more entertaining show than the church that they were at did. But the Great Commission is primarily about bringing in people from the outside. And that will only happen as you engage new people in the community and you invite them into your lives. It doesn't happen because my sermons get better or the worship gets better. It happens because individual people are commissioned to take the gospel outside of the church. And that begins in relationship so we called 2016, the last year, we called it around here the year of the Bible. Now I preached through the whole Bible. Many of you read through the Bible for the first time. This year, we're gonna focus on increasing your ability personally to reproduce spiritually. What if, what if by the end of this year, you had at least one person that you were teaching personally to follow Jesus? What if your small group had brought at least one new person to faith in Christ? What if you parents felt more and better equipped to make disciples out of your kids. That's the next year, the year of disciple making. Now, I don't mean every message I preach is going to be on that. I just mean that a lot of things that we introduce are going to have that as their goal. This year, I I want to see the focus of our church go from, from reaching to making. And what I mean by that is we're pretty good at reaching people and bringing them in. The numbers testify to that. But we want to kind of shift the focus a little bit. We're not going to ignore that, but but, but shift it to making them into disciples who make other disciples, because that's what a disciple is, somebody who makes other disciples. And if you're not making disciples, you're not actually a full disciple yet. Um, Then we also want to see it go from attracting, which again, we're pretty good at, to deploying where we are bringing people in and teaching them to be reproducing disciples of Jesus. And so to that end, we're going to do a two-week series right here at the beginning called In Earth As It Is In Heaven. And I want you to see in that how God intends to use you to bring heaven to those who are around you. Just think of it like this, in earth as it is in heaven. You're on a part of the earth. And you've got a circle, you have family, friends, place you work, place you go to school. I want you to substitute wherever that is into that phrase. I want it to be in blank as it is in heaven, at UNC, at Duke, um, in the Research Triangle Park, wherever your neighborhood, in blank as it is in heaven. Luke chapter 10, if you got your Bible, I hope you do. By the way, just out of curiosity, how many of you brought your Bible this weekend? Kind of hold it up real loud and proud here. All right, uh, digital or paper is fine. I can't say this officially, but I prefer you have paper because then I know you can't play games on it. Um, I'm fine with digital, but I know that when I see you going like this, that's Angry Birds, that is not taking notes, or this right here is Pokemon Go. So um, for those, I would encourage you make a New Year's resolution to bring a Bible. It's just so much more dynamic when you can look and see the scripture in front of you as I I walk you through it. So um, that's a good practice to pick up. Okay. All right. So Luke chapter 10, this is one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. It's one of those stories that even if you have not grown up in church, Church, you know the basic gist of this story, though I have found that very few people understand, even in the church, understand the real meaning of this story, or much less its implications. Luke chapter 10 verse 25. here's how the setup of the story goes. Behold, an expert of the Jewish law stood up to put Jesus to the test. and he said, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice a couple things there. First. The context of the question is, the guy's asking, how he can know for sure he's going to heaven." That's the most basic of all religious questions, right? How do I know that I'm going to go to heaven? Second thing you should notice is that it's not entirely a sincere question. He's doing it to try to trap Jesus, to put him to the test. So Jesus says to him in response, well, you tell me what's written in the law. How do you read the law? The Jewish expert in the law answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and... You should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, verse 28 You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. I almost laugh out loud when I read Jesus' response. That's a big old do. Love God supremely. Love God supremely. Make God the highest passion in your heart, the one you think about first and most. Make sure he is the undisputed champion of your affections. You should care more about pleasing him than anything else in your life. When your mind is idle, it should automatically turn to delight in him. You should never tire of that. You should never be distracted from it. It ought to dominate your life. And make sure you love everybody else just like you love yourself, which means to care about your neighbor's needs as much as you care about yours. Be rejoicing in their happinesses. Worry about their futures. Weep at their sorrows just as much as you do your own. Who wants to raise their hand and be like, yeah, that describes my weekend. That's my attitude coming to here this morning. And here's the dilemma of that commandment. I've asked you this before. How do you command that? How do you command love? Love is one of those things that you either do naturally or you don't. If you love something, you don't need to be commanded to love it. For example, I've told you, you don't ever have to command me to kiss my wife, eat a steak, take a nap, or enjoy my kids. I need no commands to do those things. I do them instinctively. And on the flip side, if you don't love something, then no command can change that. I hate, with a deep, dark, secret passion, mayonnaise. I just hate mayonnaise. And I hate uh, tomatoes, raw tomatoes. So if you want to make me a raw tomato and mayonnaise sandwich, you can command me to eat it. And if you are big enough, then you might coerce me to eat it, but no command of yours is going to make me love it. Love is one of those things that if you have it, you don't need to be commanded to do it. If you don't have it, no command will change that. Therein lies the dilemma. Do you see that? So verse 29, but he, the law expert, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, he feels the squeeze of that impossible standard. And so he is trying to justify himself. He's trying to wiggle out of that standard by limiting the scope of what Jesus said. And keep in mind, this man's primary concern is still his own soul, which you see presents another dilemma. A lot of atheists have pointed this out, and I think it's a very important observation. And I think you should probably listen to an atheist every once in a while because they point out a lot of good things. Um, Here's the dilemma. If you think that you have to earn your way to heaven, then every good thing you ever do, you're actually operating out of self-interest. Right. If I have to earn my way to heaven and if I have to love you to go to heaven, then loving you is actually a way of loving me. The way I've illustrated that to you before is um, the story is told of an ancient king who was beloved in his kingdom. And so uh, one day, one of his subjects, a poor carrot farmer, showed up in his court and said, King, I'm a poor carrot farmer. I have very little, um, but I dug up a four and a half foot carrot. And when I saw that carrot, I thought, that's a carrot that's only fit for a king and I love you, and I am devoted to you, and you are an awesome king, and I want to give it to you as an, as an emblem of my devotion. Well, the king was genuinely moved, and he said, well, where do you live? And the guy told him, he said, you know, I happen to own all the farmland around your little farm, and because you're such a good subject, and because you so bring delight to my heart, I'm going to give you all that farmland. And he basically quadrupled the size of his little farm. Well, one of the noblemen was standing in the back of the court, and he, you know, kind of watched this thing, and he thought, wow. If that's what the king would give in response to a carrot, imagine what he would give in response to a real gift like a horse. So he went out and he found the most magnificent horse in the kingdom and he brought the horse in the next day and he said, oh, king, you're an awesome king and I love serving you and you're so wise and I thought you should have this magnificent horse as an emblem of my devotion to you. And so the king who was, you know, shrewd and wise on his own right, um, he says, he said, well, yesterday the carrot farmer was giving the carrot to me, today you're giving the horse to yourself. You see, the dilemma of religion is that if I'm serving God as a way of earning heaven, then I'm not actually loving God or people, I'm actually loving me. That is what atheists point out about religion, and they are 100% correct, and it's the dilemma of all religion. Here's one more thing that you ought to read as you get into it, while we're at it. Based on what you know about the Bible, can you actually do something that could earn your way to heaven? No. I mean, the whole point of Jesus' life was that we couldn't earn our way to heaven. That's why Jesus had to come to earth to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He had to come live the life we were supposed to live so we could die the death that we were condemned to die. See, all these things are at play in this question, which means you read the whole story through the lens of those problems. Thus, and get this, Jesus is going to tell a story that is going to subtly shift the question and he's going to turn it on its head. And in the process, he's going to show you what it means to love your neighbor. And then he's going to show you, maybe more importantly, how you can actually do that. So let's go. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, going down literally means down. Between Jericho and Jerusalem, it was a 17-mile journey. It drops 3,000 feet in elevation. And all along the side, there are these, it's a really straight path. There are all these rocky outcroppings that are perfect for robbers and thieves to hide because they can see for a long way. And there's lots of places for them to set up an ambush. And so as this guy is going down, he falls among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead, or you could read that leaving leaving him four dead. They thought it killed him. Now, by chance, a priest, who is, of course, the most religious person in society, the religious leader, the best of the best, he's going down that road. And when he saw this beat up Jewish man, he passed by on the other side. Now, we tend to really give this guy a hard time because we get the image of some guy that's stepping over a bleeding man on his way into the donut shop. But Jewish audience that heard this would have immediately recognized a few things in this story that would have made this guy a little more sympathetic of a character. First of all, the Jericho Jericho Road was a very dangerous path. Literally in those days, it was called the Pass of Blood because it was such a natural place for robbers to hide. The one thing was true, if you had to travel the Jericho Road, you certainly did not stop. Because if you stopped, then the robbers could figure out where you were and they could come ambush you. Second, the priest was returning from Jerusalem where he had purified himself. That's why he would have gone to Jerusalem, so he could return back to his hometown and perform religious duties there. According to Jewish law, if you touched a man who died or was in the process of dying, after you'd been purified, you had to go back to the temple and go through another purification process, which could take up to seven days. The point is, it would have been massively inconvenient and dangerous and really expensive for this priest to stop and help this guy. So he thought somebody else is going to have to feel called to do this, and he passes by. So likewise, a Levite. Now, Levite were like JV priests. They were of the priestly clan. They just weren't full priests. They were they to priest what mall security are to cops. Does that help? Okay. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now here's the other thing about the Jericho Road. I told you it's long, straight. It, you, know, you could see for miles. You could see three or four miles ahead of you. Which means the Levite would have seen the priest. He would have seen him pass by, and he would have thought, Well, that's my religious leader. If the varsity can't handle it, the JV shouldn't touch it. So he just follows his leader and he passes by on the other side also. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, when he came to the place where he was, and when he saw him, notice. It doesn't say he did something first. It talks about what he felt. He felt compassion. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. Jews regarded Samaritans to be unclean because Samaritans were the half-Jew, half-Gentile offspring of the Assyrians. When they come into the northern kingdom of Israel and taken Israel captive, they forced the Jews there to intermarry. And they spawned this race of half-Jewish, half-Gentile, half-bloods bloods for you Harry Potter fans is how you would read that today. The Samaritans on their part, they retaliated by saying that they were actually the true people of God because they lived in the land of Joseph. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that Joseph was like the stud of the Old Testament and he was the best of the best. And they're like, we live in his land. We're his descendants. So we're the real Jews, not you. And so they set up their own altar. They said they were the true people of God. They were, you know, they proclaimed themselves the, the, the right ones. And so there was all this racial animosity going back and forth. To a Jew, the only good Samaritan was a dead one. Get this, Jewish people considered just eating the bread that had touched a Samaritan as equal to eating the flesh of a live pig which was the most defiled animal to them of all. And Samaritans were not the nicest people either. Uh, they would frequently rob caravans of Jews on their ways to Jerusalem. They were known to desecrate the temple on the eve of the Passover by, um, and I shouldn't laugh about this, but they, uh, they would uh, launch dead pigs by catapult on the eve of the Passover into the temple where they would splatter and get, you know, all this defiled blood all over it, which is kind of like a funny college prank, but the Jews did not think it was funny at all. So there was all this strife and animosity that went back and forth between them. That's the Samaritan. He goes up to him, however, feels compassion, and he binds up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, which means, by the way, that he would have walked the other 17 miles and the other guy would have ridden. And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii of his own money and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, you take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He gives an open line of credit to the hospital. Now, that's a dangerous situation because you don't know what's going to happen. He gives an open line of credit. All right. So Jesus then turns and he asks this Jewish expert, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And so the Jewish expert said, well, of course, the one who showed him mercy. He he can't even say the word Samaritan. He so hates the guy. He's just like, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, Here's what we got going on in this story. Jesus shows us what it means to love our neighbors. Then he shows us why we do that, which is the part nobody ever gets. So what we're gonna do first is discuss the what, and then we're gonna discuss the why, and then at the very end, I wanna give you a few practical insights on how we can do that. So you got to have the what, the why, and then the how. Here we go, number one, what it means to love our neighbors. Let me divide up the what into the who, when, and how much. Is that confusing? That probably is confusing, uh, but it's all I can do. So the what it means to love your neighbors, I'm going to give you the who is our neighbor, when we're supposed to love them, and then how much it's supposed to cost us. So here we go, letter eight. Who? The answer is anyone we see in need. The Samaritan and the Jew could not have had less in common. In order to meet the need, the Samaritan had to cross an incredible social barrier. You see, it is natural for us to help those who are like us, those with whom we identify and feel like we have a lot in common. But Jesus here teaches that we are to help those, especially those with whom we have little in common, even those who might have wronged us, which could mean the person you barely know, the person on the other side of the political aisle from you, Those whom you feel are suffering because of mistakes that they or their family have made. The boss at work who has taken advantage of you. It could be Muslims fleeing from Aleppo. It could be the illegal immigrant who broke the law to get here. By the way, I always point out when I say that, I'm not trying to make a statement on what I think the government should or should not do. The government has its own questions it has to answer about that, and I pray that God gives them wisdom. But I'm saying that for me as an individual, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. When I see someone made in the image of God in need, I'm not asking questions about how they got there. I'm saying that I want to love them the way that Jesus loved me, which means that when I put myself on the path of sin, Jesus came to rescue me. It's anybody that is in the midst of need. That's the answer to the who. The answer to the when. When do we help? That answer, whenever you see the need. You see, Christians come up with all kinds of excuses for why they don't need to help somebody in need. They'll say things like, well, I don't mind helping people who are truly victims of injustice but those people over there, they're suffering because of their own dumb decisions, and they don't really deserve our help. Their suffering is their fault. Y'all get this. The Samaritan would have had plenty of reasons to believe this Jewish man deserved his suffering. The man was a Jew, and as we've seen, the Jews were cruel to Samaritans. They were often downright racist. This man might have thought, well, you know, this is what happens when you foster a culture of racial superiority. You produce a culture of violence, and the violence will end up biting you, He had every reason to think that, but the Samaritan just reaches out in mercy. In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards listed out the most common excuses that people gave, Americans, like in the pre-America days, the most common excuses that Americans gave for not helping those who were in need in a little book called The Duty of Charity. It is amazing to me how timely these excuses still are. He identified three excuses that Christians in his day gave. Excuse number one, we only help people when they're in dire need. We really only have to help people when they're in dire need. Jonathan Edwards' answer, well, that violates the principle of loving our neighbor as ourselves, because we come to our own aid long before the situation is dire. I don't wait till I'm near death to help myself. I wait till I'm merely uncomfortable, and then I start helping myself. Excuse number two, he identified. Christians in his day would say, well, you know, they brought that trouble on themselves. Jonathan Edwards' answer, but Christ relieved the misery that you brought on yourself. Should you not love somebody else like Christ loved you? But let me ask you to think about something. Liberals and conservatives in our culture have different explanations for why the poor are poor. Why, for example, kids in poorer schools continue to struggle. And those who are more on the left, the liberals, they say things like, well, it's systemic evil. It's racism. The system is rigged to support those in power and keep them in power. And conservatives say, no, no, it's their family's fault. Their families never taught them right from wrong. Their families never taught them responsibility or read to them at night or pushed them to succeed even worse. They taught them to hate those who succeed. But both liberals and conservatives agree on one thing. It is not entirely the kid's fault, right? I mean, I think of it like this. The fact that my sister and I were born to a family that loved us and my parents read to me every night and taught me that if I applied myself, I could succeed. That was due to nothing on my part. It's not like God rewarded me after a life of good behavior with good parents. I hadn't lived any day yet. It was a gift of grace that he gave to me. In the same way, the kids that were born into poor families, bad families, they didn't ask to be born there. Therefore, we who have been a part of blessing ought to do what we can to help them and not isolate ourselves from them. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be careful or holistic in how we help. We shouldn't do it in a way that teaches dependency or in a way that ignores the family structure. But the point is, we have to do something. We can't just pass by. Proverbs three twenty seven. Solomon said, do not withhold good from your neighbor when it is in your power to act. When you see the need, when you got the ability to meet the need, the opportunity to meet the need, you also have the responsibility to meet the need. So the answer to the when is whenever you see somebody in need. The third question, how much? How much are you obligated to? The answer is, in a way that takes their burden onto yourself. You see, in order to help this beaten up Jew, the Samaritan put himself at great personal risk And like I showed you, he even used his own money and opened up a line of credit. The third excuse that Edwards identified that Christian people in the 1700s used to excuse themselves from engaging those in need is, they said, well, I got a lot of my own problems. I barely can make ends meet as it is, and I I can't afford to help somebody in need. Jonathan Edwards' answer, verses like Galatians 6.2 tell you to bear one another's burdens. Which means that you are to give and live in such a way and get involved to a point that somebody else's burden becomes something that you share. Isn't that what you see in this story? The Samaritan takes on this guy's burden as his own. Some at church, I've often explained to you there is no magic number I can give to you in regards to how much to give. There's not even a magic percentage that I can give to you when I'm talking about how much of your time or your money you should give. But the one thing I've told you that you can be sure of is that when you are following Jesus in this area, you will feel like you are shouldering some of the burden of others. That's why C.S. Lewis said, the only safe rule when it comes to giving, well, we want rules. He said, the Bible doesn't give us rules. The only safe rule, if you gotta have one, the only safe rule when it comes to generosity is that you ought to give more than you think you can spare. In other words, you give until it pains you, until you take on somebody's burden as your own. Listen, if I could say this very gently, some of you give, and based on relative measures, you give a lot, but you give it no personal cost to yourself. Our giving ought to be at a level that we experience some of their difficulty because of the amount that we give. Some of this is the core of what it means to follow Jesus. You understand that, right? This is the, the great commandment, to love people like you love yourself. Let me say something to us in particular. Believers in churches like this one face a particular temptation that Jesus is taking direct aim at. Like this priest and this Levite, we're all into religious duties, right? We're talking about reading the Bible and tithing and volunteering in small group, but when you look at our lives, there is very little giving away of ourselves. We're talking to a group of people that we are in a privileged part of the most privileged part, one of the most privileged parts of the world, and we're very conservative, just like the priest and the Levite. That would have fit that profile. And Jesus said, you got a danger, and that is you perfect the marginal and you ignore the essential. He took direct aim at this in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You could read that priests and Levites. You could, read that, you could read that summit church elders and deacons. Woe to you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. These people tithe their spice rack. That's varsity. when the offering plate goes by and you're like, here's some oregano and here's some crushed red pepper. I mean, you know, they tied everything. Yet you neglected mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, meaning the tithe, you should have tied, without neglecting the others. The weightiest part of the law, the weightiest part of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself, which means if you want to evaluate your walk with Jesus, don't ask how many Bible verses you know, don't ask how often you come to church. The question is, what amount of your resources and time are being poured out for others like Jesus poured his out for you? Believers in churches like ours can tend to studiously emphasize the marginal while neglecting the essential, which is loving people. That's what it means to love our neighbor. Now, more importantly, number two, why we love our neighbors. Why we love our neighbors. This is where Jesus turns the religious man's question on its head. If you remember, the question started with the law expert asking what he needed to do to get to heaven. And I explained to you the whole point of Jesus' life was that you couldn't do anything. That's why he came. He came to save you which is why Jesus puts an interesting twist into the story. Are you ready? You have to think with me. Why? Why have a Samaritan be the hero? Why not tell the story where just another Jew comes along and is the hero? He didn't need it to be a Samaritan to make his point. Well, why not say, for example, why not say, so the man's there, he's bleeding, and the Jew came by, the the priest came by, and then the Levite came by, and then just a really good old regular Jew who had love in his heart, and he held the man. Go be like that guy. Why not let that be the point of the story? Why did Jesus choose a man who would have represented the total opposite of the man that he's telling the story to? Why choose a character that this man has nothing in common with? Here's why. What if the person that we are most supposed to identify with in the story and that this lawyer is supposed to identify with, what if the person we're most supposed to identify with is not the priest, it's not the Levite, it's not the good Samaritan, what if the primary person we're supposed to identify with in this story is the guy bleeding on the side of the road? And what if somebody who had every reason to hate us and every reason to consider himself our enemy and who was very unlike us chose to walk down the path that we had put ourselves on and take upon himself our pain and stop to help us? What if the really good Samaritan in the story is Jesus who puts himself into our path, takes upon himself our flesh and endures the suffering that we had caused ourselves? Jesus is asking the man, what if you were bleeding to death on the side of the road and your only hope was an act of free grace from an enemy who did not owe you anything? After you had been rescued like that, what would your life look like? I think your life would be different. You see, Jesus is not giving the lawyer a new rule as much as he is making him aware of a new reality. You see, if we understand Jesus's life, we are the ones that have been saved by radical grace, by a God who had every right to regard himself as our enemy. And see, when we embrace that, we will become givers of radical grace, which is why the word that Jesus used when he talks about the Samaritan seeing the man did not first relate to an action, it related to an emotion. He saw him and he felt compassion. And I've I've explained this. Compassion in Greek is my my favorite Greek word by far. Um, It is, uh, in Greek, it is the word splagma, which is onomatopoeia in Greek. Did I say that right, English teachers, onomatopoeia, where the word sounds like what it is? like splash, like splagma. Splagma refers to this gut-level emotion, that pity that just kind of like consumes your being. In fact, you want to say it? It's kind of fun. Um, everybody touch your, your belly right here. Put your, put your fingers right here. And then, now you got to say, say it with me, right? Splagma. If, if you don't gurgle, you're not saying it right. Splagma, all right? got to sound like you're vomiting. Splagma. It's not, it's not. Splagma from up here. It's blagma. It's this emotion that you feel when somebody you love is in pain. It's like when, I, when you see one of your kids hurt. It's just you can't control it. Jesus is talking less about an action you choose and more about an emotion you can't control. Because God is not and has never been primarily after people who follow the rules. He's after people who love like he loves who respond like he responds, who think like he thinks, and that kind of change cannot be produced by the law. That kind of love in your heart cannot be compelled by law. The only way that kind of love can be produced in you is through a radical experience of grace. We love, we love, not because he told us to, we love because he first loved us. And it was when I experienced the radical grace of the good Samaritan toward me, that's when I became a loving person toward others. Because how can you experience that kind of grace and not become graceful? So Jesus taught things like the golden rule right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If I could be so bold, I think I'm within bounds on this. I actually think Jesus one-upped himself at another point, like in a story like this one, where he upgraded it to the platinum rule. So we got the golden rule, love each other like you, you want, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The platinum rule is do unto others as Jesus has done to you. So Paul would say, Ephesians 4:32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgive one another, just like God in Christ forgave you. You want to know how to forgive somebody else? You want to know the standard to use? Use the standard that God used when he forgave you. That's a big old standard, right? You want to know what your generosity ought to look like? 2 Corinthians 8:9. why don't you remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, why don't you think about your needs and your talents in light of what Jesus has done for you? You see, those who experience the gospel develop this uncontrollable impulse to be generous. They develop almost an insane ability to forgive. I, I was reminded of that this week, again, watching the latest saga in the Dylan Roof tragedy. The, you know, Dylan Roof, the guy who went in really over a year ago and murdered those African American believers in cold blood in the middle of that worship service on a Wednesday. And, um, and, you know, this week was a sentencing, and what it reminded me of was, do you remember right after the tragedy happened when the families of these African-American believers show up on TV, and they say things like, man, we're praying for you, and we love you, and we forgive you, and we're praying for your family, and even the cynical journalists are like, we're not really sure what's happening here. Why Why would their response be to somebody who just murdered part of their family, we love you, and we're praying for you, and we're forgiving you? It's not because they feel like they gotta do that to go to heaven, it's because the center of their faith is somebody who took upon himself their pain and their suffering and died in their place. They do it not in order to be saved, they do it because they have been saved. We don't do these things, we don't love our neighbors, like the lawyer, we're not loving our neighbors in order to earn heaven, we're doing it because heaven was given to us as a gift and we can't help but become to others what Jesus has come to us. You see, we love because we have been loved. That's why we love our neighbors. So that leads me to number three. Let me show you a few practical considerations for how we do it, how we love our neighbors. There's two things that this story shows us that we need. There's two things the story shows us we need. I'll give them to you as an A and a B. The A is courage. It's like I've showed you, this is fear was one of the primary deterrents to the priest and the Levite engaging. To stop and to help would have put them at risk. I would suggest to you that, Fear is one of the primary factors keeping us from loving our neighbors too. We ask questions like, well, what will be be the effect on my family? If I engage here, I mean, what's going to be the effect on my kids? If we open up our lives and our home to people with problems, I'm not sure that's safe for our family. You probably know people who have this really tight circle of friends. And, man, they're really, really careful about who they let into that circle. It's got to be people that are safe, people that are good for their kids, people that benefit their family because that's kind of their thing. I want to think, who who do I let into my life that can benefit us? Not only does that mentality cut you off for the mission of God, it ultimately destroys you. Last fall, our staff team read a book called Next Door As It Is in Heaven. And throughout the book, the author talks about how fear keeps most Christians out of really engaging in the mission of God. He said, hey, this is what I was. I was a typical American, and I grew up thinking that my home was my castle. My home was my castle. He said, so as an adult, as a Christian, our home was always open to people. It was People were always coming in and out, but always people that we chose, always people that we liked, people that brought a benefit to our family, and it was always at our convenience. He said, then I realized that my assumption in life was that the greatest thing as a father I could provide for my family, the greatest thing I was supposed to provide was safety. Then I said, I began to read the gospels and realized the greatest thing I could supply for my family was to teach them to love like Jesus loves, which meant opening yourself up to relationships that might actually expose you to danger. He talks specifically in this book about the call of God on his family's life to foster. Now, I'm not saying this is for everybody, obviously. He said, but what kept us from fostering was us always talking about what's the effect of fostering going to be on our family. And listen, there are some legitimate questions you've got to ask. I'm not trying to be foolish with that. He says, but now after having fostered for several years, he said, I will tell you um, there's a couple benefits from fostering. He said, the benefit, the obvious one is, man, you're really taking care of a kid during a time of need. You're also blessing the family, which is usually a single mom um, through doing this. You get to know them and you can begin to speak healing into their lives. He said, but the unexpected blessing, in fact, let me read this to you. He said, providing care for these children is the single best thing we've ever done for our own kids. We have learned how God uses hospitality to shape and form us. That is a fascinating aspect of kingdom living. As you bestow a blessing for the benefit of others, you realize that you too become a recipient of God's grace. Jesus has not called you, Summit Church, to pursue safety. He's called you to pursue mission. And mission is sometimes costly and relationship is sometimes dangerous, and if you cut that out of your life, you're going to cut off yourself from the blessing of the presence of God. So this guy asked the question in the book. He said, the real question for me is not how dangerous is that stranger. The real question is how dangerous will I become if I am not more open? Now listen, fostering, like I said, is not the only way to apply this. I will tell you that's a big deal to us here at the church. January 19th, we got another interest meeting coming up, um, we're praying for 75 new families to enter the foster process over the next year, and that might be one way you could apply this. Of course, it's not the only way, but that's the first thing that, 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 that we identify in this story is fear. Here's the second one. This one might be a little harder for you to see, or it might be as obvious, but when I explain it to you, I think you'll see it. Write down margin. Margin. The authors of this book I'm referring to say the second biggest obstacle to loving our neighbor is lacking any room in our lives to actually get involved in theirs. Margin just refers to that part of your budget or that part of your calendar that is not as filled up, that there's room in there to respond to a person who is genuinely in need. This guy says, he says, he says, read the parable of the Good Samaritan from the perspective of margin. It's very likely that the priest and the Levite had the desire to stop. They just didn't have the ability to stop. They had so much important stuff they had to do. They didn't have space for the things that God was putting in their lives that they needed to do. And, and 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 what I'm telling you is, for some of you, the problem is not here. You really do. You would, but you just your problem is, I guess, here. This right here, this calendar is so filled up with things that there simply is no way to respond either financially or with your time when God puts somebody in your life that He wants you to minister to. Let me tell you, I love this. This is a wonderful um, teaching. I, 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 I'd never heard this. Before. I learned this recently, and I don't. You might have heard this either. Um, Leviticus 19 is where God gives the command to love your neighbors yourself. Leviticus 19. How many of you have that passage memorized? Okay, not me either. Well, right after He gives that command, in Leviticus 19, He gives the most random law that seems to just like <laughs> go off a different direction. But it totally is how you're supposed to love your neighbor. Watch this, and you'll see how it applies to the Good Samaritan. Right after He gives the command to love God as, or love your neighbors yourself. He says, now you farmers, when you glean the harvest from your farm, I want you to leave the corners of your field ungleaned. That's rule number one. And rule number two is whatever you drop while you're gleaning, you can't pick it up. Which means if you're an apple, you know, if you've got apple trees, you can pull the apples off all the trees except for the ones in the corner, you can't touch them. And if you drop an apple while you're picking one up, you can't, you just, pick, you got to leave it on the ground. Now why would you do that? Because when the poor come along, the poor are going to be the ones who get the apples off the corner of the tree and they're the ones who pick up the g- apples off the ground. You know what that's called? Margin. That's what that's called. Because a good businessman says, every last apple I am going to take and purpose for the business. And God says, nope, not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, you're going to leave margin so that when I bring a poor person into your life, you've got something to give to them. What that means and how we apply it to this is that we need to ruthlessly think about the schedule and the budget that we have set up and ask if we have left the corners ungleaned and if we've left sitting on the ground, what we have dropped. Because for many of us, the problem is not a problem of desire. The problem is a problem of we simply have no room in our budget or our schedule to respond to the opportunities that God puts into our lives, which means this is what you got to do. You, some of you, we need to audit our lives. We're going to give you a tool here in the next couple of weeks. Um, Called a margin auditing tool. We're gonna use it in our small groups. I'll make it available on my blog too. And it's just gonna ask you some honest questions so that you can look at your life and figure out how you're spending your life and if you've got the margin to be able to be involved in the things that God has for you that are the most important. We're gonna teach you a phrase simplify and invest simplify means that you're going to need to cut out some things in your life and then the ones you choose to keep you're going to invest more deeply in them because that's a much better way to live simplify and invest a margin a margin uh, margin auditing tool all right simplify and invest the reason i'm impressed this is because you're never going to live the life that god intends until you intend to It's not nodding your head in a sermon. It's actually looking at your schedule and your budget saying, have I got it set up the way that I need to have it set up? You'll never live the life that God intends for you until you intend to. And then the flip side of that is after you audit, you're going to have to learn how to say no. You have to learn how to, no is the greatest word for mission. You'll never be able to say yes to mission until you say no to some really good things in your life. I don't mean bad things, I mean good things. The most important principle I have ever learned about time management is this, that I cannot say yes to something without automatically saying no to something else. And I'm a type A people pleaser, which means I like to say yes to everybody about everything. And I had to realize that in saying yes to this, I was actually saying no to some things that I really, really needed to focus on. And so, you're going to have to learn to say no to some good things to make room for the essential things. The authors of this book I'm referring to apply it to one area. Hear me out on this one. Don't start throwing things at me yet. They said, for us, we chose, you ready for this? Never to have any of our kids playing different sports at the same time. There was a season of life where I was going one direction with one kid, my wife was going the opposite direction with another. We decided right then that each child needed to pick one sport for the year or that the sports had to be in the same geographical location. We refer to that as pruning the activity branches. If we are serious about creating margin, you see, there will be times that something good will need to be cut off. Now, I'm not saying that's a rule for all of you. I know that for some of you, the way that you get to know your neighbors is by playing sports, and I encourage that. But the point is, I see a lot of parents who have no ability to be engaged in the mission of God or the church or hardly even be a family because of how much they're involved in. I can tell you, more. listen, families who come here about every six weeks, and they call this their church, But the other five weeks they're not here because of soccer trips and dance and recitals and beach house and trips to disney world because you don't want your kids to be deprived of any essential childhood experience and then when your kid grows up and goes to college and walks away from the faith you're like well what did we do wrong we gave them all the experiences you taught them that the wrong things in their lives were essential and you so filled up their lives with the marginal that you eliminated any space for the essential." You've got to learn to say no to good things so you can say yes to the essential things. That starts with an honest audit of your life and then some intentional decisions about how you're going to live and what you're going to make room for. So I'm a church, you understand, this is the core vision of our church. The core vision of our church is not getting a bunch of people really here on the weekend. That's not the fulfillment of the vision. The core vision of our church is a group of people that go out from here and are carrying the love of Jesus Christ and his healing into the streets. We're a group of people who gather each weekend not to sit through a religious show. We come to mobilize ourselves to take God's love into our community, which is why we end every single service with the phrase, you are sent. Our vision is to be a life-giving force moving through the neighborhoods of the triangle, bringing healing and blessing everywhere we go. That's who we are. That's why at this church, we want to be known more for what we love than what we hate. It's why we want to talk more about who we're for than what we're against. Thus, like a friend of mine says, you won't find us sitting around forming carpet color committees or mobilizing to pick at the lottery. No, over the next year, by God's grace, we're going to send thousands of volunteers into our city to minister to her most broken citizens. And in the next year, by God's grace, we're going to invest nearly half a million dollars through partner organizations in the Triangle area that serve the underserved. And that's because we love our city. We are on a mission to manifest the kingdom of God in every corner of the city, and that's because we believe Jesus is king of it all, and so we are not content to live in the ghetto of Christian subculture. That's who we are. By God's grace, this year we're going to give away almost a million and a half dollars to see churches planted around the world in places that are not reached, some right here in the triangle. That's who we are. Our message, the message of forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ, we believe is the most relevant and the most urgent message in the history of the world. And so we will not be silent about it. We will give our money to it. We will devote our time to it. We know we're not perfect, but our passion is sincere to the bone. We model our mission after our good Samaritan who came onto our path of death and helped us when we were helpless. And now we are determined to be to others what Jesus was to us. That's who we are. We are not here to condemn the world. We are not here to picket the world. We are not here to vote out the world. We're not here to merely survive the world. We are here to transform the world for the glory of God and to bring Jesus' healing into every broken, bleeding corner of it. And by God's grace, Summit Church, listen, we are here to stay. We know that not everybody in our community will approve of us, but I can tell you we're not going anywhere. Because we are the living, breathing church of Jesus Christ, blessed by Jesus to be a blessing to others. They may look at us like an unwanted Samaritan, but we're here and we're gonna pick up whoever's broken and bleeding and we're gonna carry them to the healing of Jesus. That's who we are. And we would love for you to be a part of us if you are not. Which means that if you're new to our church, we're inviting you, not to a religious show, but we would love for you to experience Jesus the way we have and then join with us in the mission of Jesus. Is that the kind of church you wanna be a part of? Is that the kind of church you want to be a part of? Then the way that you can act on that is by getting off the sidelines and getting into the game. Getting off the sidelines, getting into the game, ceasing to be a spectator and becoming a disciple maker. So, what we're going to do now is I'm going to bring up all of our campus pastors and their teams at our services, at all of our services, and we're going to pray. Our work doesn't end in prayer, but it starts here. So, we're going to baptize the future year in prayer. We're gonna pray first for two specific groups that our culture recognizes this week that we can apply this to immediately. The first is um, uh, signified by Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, Those who experience racial disparity, those who feel marginalized. And we're gonna pray that God would use our church as a place of of healing, a place of love. We're going to um, pray for peace and beauty in our society and that we could help lead the way in that. By the way, I'll tell you, I said our work doesn't end in prayer. On Tuesday night, we're going to have a forum here. Um, We're going to talk about uh, King's letter to a Birmingham jail, letter from a Birmingham jail. We're going to talk about... Um, and we're going to talk about race over the space of 50 years since he was here and, and kind of where it is in our culture and where it is in the church. And there's going to be a panel of, 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 of great people in there. I'd invite you to come and, and participate uh, in that on Tuesday night. You'll hear more details about that. The second group we're going to pray for is our culture recognizes this week. Um, some in our culture recognize the sanctity of life. And we're going to pray for the most vulnerable group in our society, which are those in the mother's womb that we believe are created in the image of God and deserve all the rights and privileges that any of us who are created in the image of God deserve. And so we're going to pray for them, we're going to pray for our society, and we're going to pray for those, some in our church who have experienced the terrible pain of um, an abortion and are dealing with the aftermath of that. And then thirdly, we're just going to say, Jesus, we want to offer ourselves to anyone um, in our community that is broken. We want to ask you to send this to them. And we're going to reflect on that and pray for it. So, our work doesn't end in prayer, but it starts here. And so, our campus pastors and their teams are going to come, and they're going to lead us in a time where we go before the throne of God.